Happy Father's Day, fathers. It's uh, good to have you with us and uh, worship the Lord together. I confess that today's message will not be a Father's Day message per se, except that it happens on Father's Day. So um, there you go. Uh, Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is uh, a very great and encouraging passage, and uh, we are uh, working our way through it, as you can tell, not super quickly, but that's fine. Most of the time when uh, when I preach, I uh, work very hard not to put so much information into the message that you drown. I spend the week kicking up dust, I call it, as I'm researching this and checking that and studying this topic, and I, I uncover a mountain of information, and then I have to sift through to give you some, you know, percentage that you can survive uh, during a Sunday morning. And, um, and so that, that is the case this week as well. However, this week is uh, uh, going to be a little bit more information, a little bit more note-taking maybe than you're used to. So I would encourage you to have a pen handy, to uh, have your uh, paper out, your outline, so that you can take notes there. And if you have a separate notebook, you, you might need that as well. Uh, you might need to borrow from your neighbor on that one. We're going to cover a lot of information. We're not going to cover a lot of verses, but we're going to cover a lot of information. And it's my intention in every message that I preach that you see Christ throughout the message. And it's my intention today that you see Christ throughout this message as well. What he has accomplished, why he came, what his sacrifice means. And so that's, that's my desire today. But there will be more information perhaps than, uh, than we are used to. But I think as a result of our time today, you'll have a greater appreciation, not just for these verses, but for the truths that these verses teach. And for truths that you will begin to see everywhere in Scripture as you read on your own. And so in that way, we want to exalt Christ and we want to honor Him and honor His Word. And so uh, we are opened to Romans chapter 8, looking at verses 29 and 30 again today. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in this way this morning with our Bibles open before us. Realizing this is your word, this is your word to us. And we are grateful that we have this opportunity. We're grateful that we get to be together, to worship you together, to fellowship with one another, to sit under the teaching of your word, to pray together. Father, we ask this morning that you would be honored as we look at these densely packed verses. 
And as we examine aspects of this golden chain of redemption, Father, we seek to understand what you have for us. We seek to understand how you communicate yourself to us, not only in your word, but in your son and in salvation. And so we ask that you would be at work this morning. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be taking your word and applying it to our hearts. That you would bring a new understanding. That you would bring a new, uh, fresh joy in what we see here. We seek to hear from you by means of your word as communicated to us by your spirit. And so we... We come in submission. We come in humility before your word. Asking that you would be at work even in this time. Father, we trust you and we look to you even at this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, to start off your list that you're going to be writing today, I want to introduce two theological terms that will help us in our discussion. Occasionally, I run across a person who resists using uh, theological terms that are not found in the Bible because they want to use Bible language only, and I, I appreciate that. However, these theological terms that we're going to introduce today and many, many other theological terms have been introduced to us for the sake of having a shorthand way to communicate concepts to one another. So when I have someone who objects to the use of, of uh, uh, theological terms that are not biblical terms, I want to ask them, do you believe in the Trinity? Because that's a word that's not in your Bible. And yet, it's such a central theme, it's such a central concept, it's such a central doctrinal truth that if you don't believe in the Trinity, if you deny the Trinity, we say you can't be a Christian. So that is a very essential theological concept. The word itself is not all that important, but the concept of the Trinity is just that important. And so the two uh, words that we're going to introduce today, I'm going to introduce because they are helpful shorthand. And I'm going to define them. We're going to talk about them and, and discuss them. Um, and, and I hope that it will be in a helpful way. Those two words, neither one is a biblical word, but both are important uh, the first word, the first important theological term is called synergism. Synergism. And you're, you've heard that word in various contexts, right? It just means a working together. Uh, the idea of synergism, working together. And when we refer to synergism in a theological concept, this is what we're talking about. We're saying, uh, we're, we're, we're attempting to describe the relationship between God as the offerer, provider of salvation, and man as the responder and the recipient to salvation. So when we talk about synergism in the context of salvation, we're talking about a cooperation, a working together between God and man that results in salvation of man. The two the two parties, as it were, each do their own part. And when each part is done, when each party accomplishes their part, when they do their part, then the result is 
salvation to the sinner. Right? So that's a description of God doing his part and man doing his part. And the result is that the man is saved. For his part, God offers forgiveness in Christ. He shows grace. He communicates the gospel. That's God's part. And man's part is to accept that offer, to believe. And once each part is done, the two have worked together, the result is salvation to the sinner. If either party does not do their part, there is no salvation to the sinner. Whether God doesn't offer the gospel or whether the person doesn't respond appropriately to the gospel, if you remove one party, then there is no synergism, there is no salvation. So that's the concept of synergism. But there's a second term that we want to talk about, and that's the opposite. That's monergism. It's the same idea of, of working, but it's mono. It's a, it's a working by itself, meaning there's only one party that works, not two parties where you have synergism, but one party works and accomplishes salvation. It conveys the notion that, that only the one party God accomplishes salvation. When he does his part, the result is the person being saved. So you see you have a synergism where you've got two working together, each doing their part. And you have a concept of monergism where God works in such a way as to accomplish the whole thing. So that's monergism. The result of each, when it's completed, is the person being saved. When we look at our passage today, it's going to be helpful for us to have those concepts of, of monergism and synergism in our minds. Now, I, I will encourage you that we won't make it very far today. And that's by design. It's, I've only got my normal number of pages of notes here. We're not, uh, it's not that I'm cutting short or something like that. But we are only going to cover what in English is about the first five words. The reason being, that's the foundation and that foundation must be laid. If we have confusion about the foundation of those first five words in uh, our English text, then we're going to be left hanging. And there can be something that can crumble later on and we will run into confusion. So point number one, that's all by way of introduction. Point number one, what's at stake in this discussion? What's at stake? Or in other words, why study foreknowledge? Why study the difference between synergism and monergism? It sounds like something that you should uh, discuss at seminary and probably leave there. So why study it here on a Sunday morning? Well, I have a couple of reasons. First of all, God's foreknowledge is in the Bible. Election and predestination are in the Bible. Discussions of synergism, monergism, though not using those terms, are in the Bible. Paul thought it was important enough to write paragraph after paragraph where we are in Romans and in Ephesians and in Colossians and in other places that Paul would write that much on it. He thought it was that important. Jesus spoke repeatedly on the topic. In our Sunday school class going through the Gospel of John, we've run across this topic again and again and again where Jesus is dealing with it. The other writers in the Old and New Testament deal with it as well. It's a common theme. And 
It has come up in our passage. As we've been preaching passage by passage through Romans, we've arrived here. So we either discuss it or we ignore it. And we dare not ignore it. So first of all, why study foreknowledge? Why study this topic? Well, it's in the Bible. It's in a lot of places in the Bible. Secondly, why study it? Well, it, it deals with the very touch point, the very crux of how our relationship with God is established. That how it's accomplished, how salvation happens. It's, it's the crux. It's the center of that. Why wouldn't we want to study it? Why wouldn't we want to understand the nature of this salvation that we have in Christ? Why wouldn't we want to understand the nature of this salvation, this gospel that we attempt to communicate to other people around us? Of course we want to understand it. And thirdly, on that same note, the interplay between God's sovereignty and man's choice affects how we do evangelism. It affects how we pray for the lost. It affects how we share the gospel, how we make the gospel understood to people. Because it talks about how we establish relationship with God. So why study foreknowledge? I think those, those three reasons are compelling. Well, secondly, what do we forfeit by avoiding the discussion? It's hard work. It, uh, it, there's, a, there's emotional energy Sometimes when you discuss this with people, I say sometimes, I really mean often, when you discuss this topic with people, emotion comes into it pretty quickly. And we have a lot invested. We have skin in the game. So what do we forfeit by avoiding the discussion? Well, I'd say, first of all, we ignore one or more of the revealed things. We talked from Deuteronomy 29, 29 a couple weeks ago about the fact that God has revealed things. There are hidden things. There are secret things. And those secret things are His. And we don't edge into those areas. But where He's revealed them, He's revealed them because they are ours for us to understand and for our children to understand. So this is one of the revealed things as evidenced by the fact that it's discussed so much in uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament. So what do we forfeit? Well, we actually are treating a revealed thing as if it were a secret thing. We forfeit a part of what God has communicated to us by avoiding the discussion. Secondly, what do we forfeit? We forfeit a clear and robust understanding of what God and we have done in salvation. We've left that area vague when that is a central issue. By avoiding the discussion or avoiding thinking about it with our Bibles open before us with our nose in the text, our grasp of exactly what this salvation is and how it comes about remains a little bit fuzzy. And then when you're sharing the gospel with a sharp skeptic, someone who thinks clearly, someone who, someone who sees errors in logic and reasoning, if you've got a fuzzy view on what this salvation is and you try to talk to that person who sees clearly into stuff like that, it will become evident. They'll see. Well, but you said this, but, but then you said this. There's something inconsistent there. And in doing so, we are doing no favors to the skeptic and we are confusing the gospel. The gospel gets misrepresented. So we need to have a clear understanding of this topic. We don't want to forfeit that clear understanding. Thirdly, 
we forfeit being guided by Scripture on the topic, preferring instead to rely upon our own common sense, relying on our own understanding, relying on the way we've always understood things. In other words, we prefer instead to rely upon our presuppositions, meaning we had certain thoughts about that notion when we came to the text, and we're going to go away with those same notions, having not examined them in light of the text. So we don't want to forfeit being guided by Scripture on such a crucial issue. Instead, we're going to retain our preconceived notions. And of course, we can't do that. We don't want to do that. None of you wants to do that, and I don't want to do that. So today, what we're going to do is work through it in detail, maybe even excruciating detail. I hope not. But it will be in detail. And and the reason is that's how we expose our presuppositions. That's how we expose what we have uh, already thought, already had in our mind when we, that we brought to the text by working in a detailed fashion through the text, exegeting that way. Then we begin to expose things that, oh, I, I thought this was the case and I've always believed this and, oh, I just assumed that. It's part of what exegesis does is exposes that stuff. And then what do we forfeit if we lose foreknowledge? If we lose foreknowledge. First of all, I would say biblical consistency. We lose, we forfeit biblical consistency if we lose foreknowledge. For example, in the Old Testament, the Israelites are clearly God's chosen people. Clearly God's chosen people. He came to them and selected them. Deuteronomy 14, 12, you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. We don't have an issue with that. Reading in the Old Testament, we read that the nation of Israel is God's chosen people. He sought them out. He made them his own. He chose them. He didn't choose them because of anything in them, not because of any any current faithfulness on their part when he chose them, nor any perceived faithfulness on their part. He chose them because he chose them purely to show his grace in them. So we understand that when we read the Old Testament, talking about the nation of Israel, and somehow when we come to the New Testament... And we discuss the concept of God choosing people. Well, now we throw up our hands. Now we, we begin to object. God can't do that. Of course, he did it for two-thirds of the Bible. But now we get to the New Testament and talking about individuals, and he can't do that. So I would say that by forfeiting this discussion, by losing foreknowledge, we forfeit biblical consistency. And I'll seek to prove that as we go on. Secondly, what do, we, what do we forfeit if we lose foreknowledge? I would say a biblically high view of God's sovereign grace and a biblically low view of man's condition. A biblically high view of really what is involved in God's grace and a biblically low view of precisely what man has to offer. I think that's something we lose if we lose monergism, if we lose foreknowledge. Now, no Christian I have ever met who believes in synergism and denies monergism, no Christian I have ever met 
believes that he is in any way limiting God's grace. He doesn't try to. He's not seeking to limit God's grace. He doesn't see in his own life that, that his belief system limits God's grace. That's, that's not his intention. I've never met a Christian who thought that was the case, who said, yeah, my, my theological system uh, lowers God's grace. I've never, I, I don't, no one's ever thought that. However, I've never met a, a Christian who used to deny monergism, who used to deny God's foreknowledge, his sovereignty and salvation, who used to deny it, but now rejoices in it. I've never met a Christian in that condition who didn't say, oh man, my eyes have been opened and I indeed was understanding a lower version, a diminished version of God's grace. And now I see a greater version of God's grace. And on the other hand, I, I, I didn't think so at the time, but I actually was raising man and his capacity and what he was capable of. And now I see that biblically speaking, he's not capable of that. This is something that we lose if we lose foreknowledge. So, with all of that as background, let's look at our text for today. I'm going to read 29 and 30 once again. With all of that, knowing what's at stake, knowing the the background, let's look at 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called... He also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this has been referred to, I've already called it once, uh, the chain, the golden chain of redemption. It's been referred to as that uh, for the last uh, few hundred years. Um, Someone coined that term, and the reason is because it's beautiful, golden. It's uh, It's about salvation, obviously, and it's a chain. You see how they're each linked to one another, and It's uh, my desire to examine the unbroken nature of that change. First of all, you'll see it's the same subject throughout. The same subject throughout. throughout. I'm speaking grammatically. You've got verbs. A verb has a subject. And then a verb will have an object. Right now I want to talk about the subject, right? So as you go through these verbs and you look at what they are, you see that there is the same subject throughout. It is the same person who is doing the acting throughout. The the same subject is accomplishing. He foreknew. He predestined. He called. He justified. He glorified. That's the same subject throughout. And that subject, of course, in the context here is God. It is God who does this. This springs out of 28, which talks about we understand that, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Another translation of that says, God works all things for good. Either one is fine because by saying it in the passive, Paul is trying to convey in 28 when he says all things work together for good. Where's the subject? Who's the actor? Is it the things that are working themselves? Well, things don't work themselves. It's what's called a divine. It's the concept of the divine passive where it's obviously God who is at work bringing that about. Well, how is it that God can be at work bringing all that stuff about? Well, because God foreknew and God predestined and God called. So we have the same subject throughout, and that subject is God. 
And so, God being one who is acting, there is no break in the, in the chain. There is no weak link. Which subject is going to fail in this list of things that are being accomplished? It's not going to be God, and He's the only subject. So, there is the same subject throughout. It is God who is doing the acting. Secondly, there are the same objects throughout. The same objects throughout. And when, when you look at this, you can see that Paul is going to great pains to indicate. I'm talking about this group, a particular people, these individuals. By the way, it's plural. It's not a group. When I use the word group, I mean the, the object. But it's, it's plural. He's talking about people. He's not talking about the church or a group. That would make it singular. He's talking about the individuals who populate that group. He says, For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. We talked about that last week. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And... Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He goes to great pains. It's somewhat awkward to read, actually, because he's so detailed, being so specific that I'm talking about those same people. The ones I mentioned here, yeah, I'm talking about them. And then God did this thing to them. And remember that group of people I just talked about? He's, he does this thing. It's the same object throughout. Those who are foreknown are exactly the ones who are predestined. No more, no less. And those who are predestined are exactly the ones who are called. No more, no less, etc., etc. All the way through, it's the same people from the beginning of the chain who wind up at the end of the chain. One group of objects, these people, have a series of actions performed upon them by the subject, who is God. And so this is why it's been referred to as the golden chain of redemption. It is unbreakable. It's, it's, it's perfect. It's unbreakable. There is no slippage. There is no loss there. I understand that gold is soft and you can break gold. I understand that. That's not the point. The point is how beautiful it is. (laughs) The person who coined that term also understood that gold is soft. But but it's, it's beautiful and it is perfect and it is valuable. It is infinitely valuable. There is no one lost or added from the very first action of foreknowing to the very final action of glorification. So those are some characteristics of the chain as a whole. And we'll spend the rest of our time looking very closely at just the first link. We've already discussed some of the subsequent links and we'll go into more detail on them next week, Lord willing. But we want to focus on the first one, that, that verb foreknew. And we want to see what is the divine agency in the chain, especially in the start of it. Especially in the start of it. We need to define what exactly is going on. Because once we understand the beginning of it, that's going to determine how the rest of it is going to flow. So let's look at divine agency in the chain. He says in 29, those whom he foreknew. So what is knowing in the Bible? What is knowing 
in the Bible. Our, our word here, foreknow or foreknew, consists in two parts in Greek and in English. For, meaning before or in advance or beforehand. For, know, to, to know, to, to know someone, something. Now, that, that may, or not, may or may not be helpful to examine the, the makeup of the English word. Etymology is not a reliable means of determining uh, what a word means. What we need to do is look into the biblical text, look into biblical usage and see how the Bible uses that term. By the way, we should often do this. We, we very often come to the text and we think we know, we think we understand what a particular word means, and so we bring in the baggage of what we already understand and, and stick it right into the text when maybe it wasn't there. So we need to look at the biblical usage of the term to see what he means, what Paul means by it here. So we're going to break it apart and look at the know part, the knowing part, and then we will put it together and look at foreknow. Okay, so knowing. Plus, I'll notice what we have here is a personal object. See, there's a great difference between knowing a thing or knowing about a thing. I know that today is Father's Day. That's very different than saying, I know my father. Or to say, I know that Donald Trump is the president is extremely different than saying, I know about Donald Trump. And that's extremely different from saying, I know Donald Trump. See, there's a, there's a whole breadth of difference there from knowing something about him to knowing him. And the same concept is true in Greek and in Hebrew and in our text uh, right here. We're going to see how this plays out. So let's look at some Old, Old Testament examples. And if you can turn there, uh, great. I'm not going to go super slowly, but make sure you write them down. Uh, I, I want you to look at these. I want you to understand them. Uh, Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, verse 17, verse 25. In Genesis chapter 4, you have three examples where you have a husband knowing his wife and she conceived and bore a son. He, he knew his wife. That's this, this word to know. Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived. So three times in Genesis chapter 4 alone, you have the concept of, of a man knowing his wife. And likewise, in the New Testament, what happened when Mary was pregnant and she and Joseph were betrothed? He knew her not until she had given birth. It's talking about intimacy. That's what's going on in Matthew 1 and verse 25, where Joseph knew Mary not until she had given birth. So you see that, at least in these usages of the word know, when one person knows another person, there's an intimacy. There's relationship involved. There's, there's love and there's choice involved. One of the more sobering usages of this word to know is in Matthew 7 and verse 23, where Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
You mean Jesus, Jesus didn't know who they were? He didn't, he didn't know their names. He didn't know information about them. No, it's clear what's talking, what, what is missing here is not, not Jesus having certain information. There's relationship missing. And that's the point. Depart from me. I never knew you is exactly his point. Biblically, speaking of knowing a person conveys commitment and intimacy and choice and selectivity and relationship. Now, the fact that choice is involved is clear from a couple of other Old Testament examples. The, the Greek word that we're using here is used by the Septuagint translators when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated over the course of time in the, in the couple of centuries before Christ into Greek. The word that they often used to translate no is this word that we're talking about now in the Greek. Uh, it's gnosko in Greek. And in the Hebrew, it, it very often translated the word yada, which means to know. And this word yada is found in Genesis 18 and verse 19, where many English versions translate it as have chosen. Genesis 18:19, God says, I have chosen Abraham. Literally, it says, I have known Abraham. But it's clear, particularly when you look at the, the way the different English translators have translated it, there's, there is choice. I have chosen Abraham. He's the first of the chosen people. He stood in a special covenant relationship with the Lord. The Lord knew him because he had chosen him. Similarly, in, in Amos chapter 3 and verse 2, the Lord speaks of Israel and he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And some of the English versions, again, make it clear. He means, You only have I chosen. Or was God ignorant of other nations on the earth? Did he not possess knowledge about them? Did he not know how many they were and what their intentions were and where they lived and et cetera, et cetera, so that he only was acquainted uh, with information regarding Israel? No. The point is he chose them. They were his chosen people. And he says the same in Hosea 13 and verse 5. But, but I think there's an even more powerful uh, verse that will help us understand what, what is known uh, what is understood by this idea of no. And that is in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, God says to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Well, I mean, God does possess knowledge of all things. But why would he say that of Jeremiah? That doesn't make much sense because he also knew you and he knew everyone else. He knew Pharaoh. He, he had possessed knowledge about everyone before anyone came about. So why would he say that? Well, he makes it very clear. He explains in the, in the next verses, he says, before you were born, I thought someone was objecting. I thought, that's great. Never had that happen before. He says, before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So he's explaining what he means. I didn't just possess knowledge about you beforehand, Jeremiah. I appointed you. I selected you to be a prophet. He set him apart. Before he was even conceived, he was set apart to be a prophet. He knew him. And that's the kind of knowing that Paul is talking about in Romans 8, 29. So that's, first of all, just looking at knowing in the Bible. Now let's look at foreknowing in the Bible. Again, where you have God as the subject, as you do in Romans 8, 29, and where you have 
a personal direct object. You have personal objects who are known. Romans 11.2. Romans 11.2 talks about God's people whom He foreknew. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Did God have passive knowledge of His people? No, He he knew them. He chose them. We've already looked at the Old Testament uh, uh, commentary on that, that, that they were the chosen people selected by God, not because of what they had done, but because God chose to demonstrate His grace in their lives. And who formed that relationship between God and Israel? God did. He, didn't, he not only initiated it, He completed it. He is the one who formed that relationship. He chose them. And Paul makes that plain, even here in our context of 11.5. We just looked at 11.2, look down at 11.5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Foreknowledge involves choosing beforehand, in advance, even before the person is conceived. First Peter 1.20, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Christ was foreknown. Was He only passively known by the Father? Was He, was he one of many who was known? No, this is a, a discussion of the intimate relationship between the Father and the Son through all eternity. He was foreknown by the Father. In all of these instances that we've looked at, when the word foreknow has God as the subject and people as the object, it's clear that it speaks of a choice made by God beforehand, a relationship that God enters into in advance even of the person's birth. And finally, on this same topic, going back to 8, 29, and 30, if we compare all of the other verbs in this sentence of 29 and 30, we will see that they are all active, transitive verbs, which means there's something being accomplished upon an object. Accomplished upon people. And the view that would have God receiving some sort of passive knowledge beforehand, knowing beforehand who would believe and therefore foreknowing them in that way or something like that, this passive reception of knowledge would put the verb foreknow out of step with all of the other verbs in the sentence. For whom he foreknew, he predestined. That's obviously an active doing something, accomplishing something on their behalf. That's acting upon the object. And a calling is a calling upon, an active calling upon an object and all the way through justifying and glorifying. Those are active upon the object. God foreknew people. He didn't simply possess foreknowledge about people. So, finally, what does it mean to be foreknown by God? He says in in 29, those whom He foreknew. What does it mean to be foreknown by God? When used with God as the subject and a person or persons as the object, as is the case here, it means to establish a relationship with a person beforehand by choosing him. In other words, when Paul says those whom he foreknew, he means those whom he chose beforehand 
to love them, to enter into relationship with them. So I introduced the concept of monergism and synergism at the beginning of this discussion. So you can see that I'm, I'm arguing for the concept of monergism, meaning this is God at work from beginning to end. All the way back from foreknowing those people. That's God at work. And those people he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. This is God at work. This is why it's the golden chain of redemption. Because it's, it's in God's hands. We see that he, as the sovereign one, just as he chose Israel in the Old Testament, so he chooses and saves, fully accomplishes the salvation of individuals even now. This is God at work. So a couple of points of application here as we wrap it up. First of all, if you have any questions, ask me. I'm sure many of you have questions. This is, I understand this is a, a challenging subject, even just the number of verses and the concepts. Challenging subject, but it's also challenging personally because we have personal investments. We have things we've always believed, and aren't those things uh, true and and maybe, maybe I've said that some of those things aren't true. So I encourage you to ask me. You can call. You can email. A call is probably better. Talking face-to-face is better. It might, it might help you to re-listen to the sermon because I flew through a lot of verses in this discussion. But my, my desire in this, my desire in this is that you would come along with me to understand and see this doctrine. Because it arises naturally from the text. Second application. This ought to free us all in our evangelism. Why don't you have a seat, Jim? Please. this, This frees us up naturally in our evangelism. God knows those who are His, and He uses us as His instruments to bring them to Himself. So, as a result, in my evangelism, I don't have to be afraid that I'm going to share the gospel in a way that wasn't convincing enough or winsome enough or emotional enough. Maybe I didn't bring them along emotionally with me adequately or maybe I wasn't smart enough in my presentation of the gospel. It frees me from those things. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. That verse doesn't say, if you share the gospel well enough, it will be the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Because God uses the proclamation of the gospel to bring sinners to himself. Do I know who will come to him? I have no idea. This this person I'm talking to, it may seem like they're on the verge, they're going to believe, and they never believe. Or this person may be a hardened, confirmed sinner. And I can hardly believe that this guy would ever get saved and he believe. I have no idea who's going to respond. So I share the gospel in full confidence that God is going to use the gospel to draw those people to himself. Those people that he already foreknew. I just don't know who they are. And so I share the gospel broadly. 
So it frees me up to share the gospel with boldness and confidence and, and looking for God to work. And if my gospel opportunity didn't go well and the person doesn't believe and, and I go home, I don't, have to, I don't have to look for what I did wrong. I blew it somehow, obviously. I guess I should have studied up harder. I guess I should have known the answer to that objection. Or I guess I should have smiled more. You see how this frees me from that. I can come with the gospel. I do the best I can. I desire to communicate the gospel as clearly and as logically, and I see the emotion in it and everything else, but I don't rely upon any of that. I rely upon the gospel, so I share the gospel. Another point of application, worship and glorify Him in all His glory and grace. In all His glory and grace and grace. Once you understand the biblical nature of man, you will rejoice that God ever saved anyone, and you will understand that his salvation of anyone is purely because he decided to show grace to them. Because that person and you and I have nothing to offer. If the synergistic concept were true, there would be zero people ever saved because we would never respond. But the synergistic concept is not true. God acts. God accomplishes salvation. Jesus came not to make sinners savable, not to just offer salvation. He came to save sinners. And He does so. And so the fact that, that we're redeemed causes us to rejoice that God accomplished it. Because had He left me a part to do, I wouldn't have done it. And you wouldn't have done it. And the person you're sharing the gospel with would not do it. But God saves. God saves. Fully and effectually. And so worship Him and glorify Him in all His glory and grace. When you come to understand these truths, when you come to see that it is, it requires entirely the work of God and we have nothing to contribute, we wouldn't even believe if it weren't for His working. When you come to understand that, you'll see it everywhere in Scripture. And you'll wonder, why didn't I see that before? It's there again and again and again. And more than that, when you come to worship, you will understand God's grace at an even greater and higher degree than you ever thought possible. And you'll rejoice. And you'll praise Him. And you'll want to take this gospel to other people that others might experience the same thing. So I know this is a lot of information. And I know... It's a lot to chew on. So we'll just come back to these verses next week and choose, choose some more. Um, hopefully, uh, the goal is next week to do all of 29 and 30, you know, the whole thing. That's, uh, I know that's bold. But, but with what we've talked about today, we had to lay a foundation. Because if you have a different foundation, then the golden chain of redemption takes you somewhere else. 
you do not arrive where Paul will take you, that we're going to finish Romans chapter 8 rejoicing in these truths. How is it that we can have such joy and such confidence that, that no one can separate us from the love of God? Because it's, he's the one who started it in the first place. He will accomplish it. There's no slippage. There's no weak link in the chain. And so I can rejoice whatever comes against me, even if angelic powers come against me. I can rejoice and praise God and trust Him and have confidence in His salvation. Even if I grow weak, even if the weakness is me, I go back to the the chain and I look and I see, well, what part did I play? What contribution did I make? Which link am I? I'm not. I'm not. And so I trust all the more in Him. And I rejoice all the more in this salvation that He's given me. That's the gospel. That's how salvation works. That's what we rejoice in. And that's where our confidence in Christ is located. He has finished it. Let's pray. Father, this is heavy stuff, maybe. It may be different than what we've heard. It may be different than what we have thought. It may irk us. But Father, I I see it in the text. I see it all over in the text. And I find joy in it. And I find peace in it. And I rejoice in you because of it. Father, my, my prayer for each of us is that you, by your Spirit, using your Word, would continue to work in our hearts today and this week and in preparation next week. Speak to us. Apply these things in our lives. Help us to rejoice in you as we ought to, to give you the, the thanks and the praise that is truly due you, taking no, no part of, of, of glory or accomplishment or anything to ourself because we wouldn't have done any of it, and yet you did. Father, I pray that you'd work in our hearts. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. God bless you all and you are dismissed.